I just want to share a personal word with you, and that is that, um, you know, every time I'm able to stand before you, it's a real privilege for me. It's also a great responsibility, and so I understand that, and I walk that tension, uh, but I want to let you know that uh, whenever I stand before you, it's uh, with humbleness before the Lord, hoping that something that God says uh, through me uh, will be something that you can use in your life, something that will make a difference in your life. And this afternoon, we're talking to fathers, but in a way, we're talking to everybody in this place. So don't tune out just because you say, I'm not a father or a grandfather. No, God's Word is applicable to all of us. And if there's something that I've learned over these um, many years, the longer I live, I finally catch on to what's going on is that the human being, as human beings, we are generally an unhappy bunch. We're an unhappy bunch. Uh, We try to find happiness in the strangest places because we're so unhappy. Uh, Like, for example, people uh, say, what do you do for fun? What do you do for, you know, to make yourself uh, feel uh, better? And they'll say, well, I seek my comfort in people. I seek my comfort in positions. I seek my uh, comfort in possessions. And so those three things seem to just about summarize it. When we're unhappy, we flee to those things. We try very hard to find our happiness in that. Let me give you an example. I was talking to a dear brother in Christ who's, who's quite a gadget guy, and uh, I am too. Uh, and so what happens? He says, did you know, Pastor, that Singapore is known in the electronic industry as a must-have test market? A must-have test market. And I says, wow, I never heard it put that way before. What do you mean? And he says, if a company wants to know if their latest gadget will sell, they will launch it in Singapore to see how it sells. Why? Because they know that Singaporeans are crazy about gadgets, okay? And they know that if they introduce it in Singapore and it sells well here, it's going to sell well anywhere, okay? And so that's uh, an example of how people seek their happiness in possessions. But But once we have it, we realize that soon we are unhappy again. And so we're up for the next big thing, okay? So we're up to the iPad Air 25. We're up to the, you know, iPhone 99, you know, all this kind of stuff. Why? Because we have to have the latest gadget. Because we really think that that's what's going to make us happy. But you know, the Bible says something about this. In Ecclesiastes chapter 1, I mean Proverbs chapter 27, verse 20. And just as death and destruction are never satisfied, so human desire is never satisfied. Boy, there's a lot of truth in that, don't you think? Because we always are looking for the next big thing. We're always looking for the thing that will make us happy. Now, this has direct impact upon fathers, okay? I once read that this person was writing on fatherhood, and they said, you know, Fathers ought to be the thermostats in their home. They should be the thermostats. They're the ones that set the tempo and the temperature of well-being in their families. And I thought, wow, that's a pretty good analogy. You know, a thermostat is the one that controls the temperature, 
okay? It's not a thermometer that reads the temperature. It's a thermostat. It sets the temperature. And so what he's trying to say is us fathers have that role to be the thermostats in our home. When we as dads are, good, are doing good in our jobs, our family does well. When dad is happy, things tend to go better for the family as a whole. And so this seems to be that thermostat uh, situation. What is it then that will make dads happy? What is it that will truly make them set a good temperature in their homes? You see, that's what we want to drive at this afternoon. I believe that the precious word of God, our create by, uh, of God, holds the key answers to these questions and many more. And so I want you to turn with me to Psalms chapter 1, verses 1 to 6. 1 to 6. And we have to understand a little bit about the book of Psalms. And that is that Psalms chapter 1 is a gateway to the entire collection of the Psalms. What are the Psalms? The Psalms were actually the hymnal of the nation of Israel. All right? Through poetry and song, the, the writers connected us and showed us great truths of God. These are timeless truths that are passed along from one generation to the next to read and to heed. They're just not there for us to enjoy, but they are there for us to actually read and to meditate upon and to glean truths from God for our daily living. Now, in this very first chapter, we are confronted with descriptions of a godly person and an ungodly person, okay? And how do we know that? Well, if you jump down to verse 6, it's very clear. For it says, the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. So who is he talking about? He's talking about two different people. He's talking about the righteous. He's talking about the wicked, And so this is where our study begins to pick up because God is going to give us a comparison between the two. If you will, I'll use the terms the godly man and the ungodly man just for sake of discussion and clarity. So these are the two groups of people that he is talking about. So he starts out with the godly man. This is in verses 1 to 3. Now, this is the one, as we will read later and find out, is the one who has a personal relationship with God. All right? Let's make no mistake about it. When he talks about the righteous, he's talking about the person who is made righteous because of his relationship with God. You'll also notice that he moves from the negative to the positive. So, what is the writer doing? The writer is laying a case for the life of the godly person... And he starts out with what he doesn't do. What he doesn't do. And then he ends up with what he does do. All right? You got it? So it's the negative to the positive. That's where we're headed. And so in verse 1, we find that he uses several key words. He said, how blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the path of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers. Now look at that word blessed. Does it sound familiar to you? Yes. It's the same concept that we find in the Sermon on the Mount. 
when Jesus preached and he said, blessed are, you know, and so on and so forth. The word blessed here carries the idea of being happy no matter what the circumstances are. Being happy no matter what the circumstances are. Now, that baffles our mind. It ha- it, it's hard for us to register. Why? Because so much of our happiness is based upon our circumstances, right? So if our boss is happy with us, we are happy, right? If the boss is happy with us, he gives us a happy bonus. We are happy. You see, we're all tied to circumstances. But the strange thing is God says, no, blessed or happy is the person in spite of their circumstances. It's not dependent on our circumstances. So he starts talking about the godly person. And in verse 1, he talks about his path. And what we see here is that the godly person is the one who knows God and endeavors to walk with him. Now, it's interesting here that there are three verbs here. He says, walk, stand, and sit. Now, if I was writing this thing, I would reverse the order. I would have said, sit, stand, and walk, right? Isn't that the normal order? You're going to, you know, you're going to sit for a while. You're going to stand, and then you're going to get out of here, right? You're going to walk. That's how we normally think. But look what he says here. The writer writes it as walk, stand, and sit. So there's a point he's trying to drive across. What is that point? First of all, he describes the godly person. He says he does not listen to advice from the wicked. Okay? He doesn't walk in the counsel of the wicked. Now, what this means is that as we're going about living, as we're going about walking, we don't we don't we don't have close relationships with the unsaved or the ungodly. Doesn't mean we can't have relationships with them. We just don't have close relationships with them. We save that category of relationships for the people who are saved. So he says, this is what he does. He doesn't walk in the counsel of the wicked. Who are the wicked? Well, the Bible uh, says that this is the one... uh, who lives according to their own passions, who has no room for God in their lives, and pays no mind to God. Now, let me prove this with a verse. If you look at Psalms chapter 10, Psalms chapter 10, verse 4, and it says, The wicked in the haughtiness of his countenance does not seek him. All his thoughts are, there is no God. So this wicked person is pretty serious. He's a person that has no room for God. He has no place for God. He has no mind for God. And he says, the person who is godly does not fellowship. He does not have close relationships with such people. These people are morally unstable, and they do not know God. So that's the first thing. He does not listen, does not have fellowship with this group. Number two, he does not live as the sinner does. If you look there, nor stand in the path of sinners. And so this is how it evolves. The sinner is a lawbreaker. He makes lifestyle choices that are contrary to the standards of God. So he says, hey, if you're a godly person, you're not going to hang around with these people too much. 
and for sure, you are not going to adopt the lifestyle choices that they make. Okay? So those are two things already. The third thing is quickly follows up. In the last part, he does not laugh with the scoffers, it says, nor sit in the seat of scoffers. You know, when you walk, you can walk by, right? You can just walk by. It's just a glancing walk, okay? But then suddenly, when you start standing with them, you start getting a little chummy. You start, you know, uh, let me get in here a little closer. I want to hear what you have to say. And then you start sitting down with these people. You start breaking bread with these people. You start maybe philosophizing with these people. That's a different story altogether. And he says, the godly person doesn't go that far. He doesn't do that. He doesn't do that. Okay? And so he does not laugh with the scoffers. The scoffers are those who reject God, mock God and his word, and they actually glory in their sin. They glory in their sin. <clears throat> I was, when I was working as a pharmacist, we, after the weekend, the, the crew would come back together. What did you do this weekend? Oh, brother, you wouldn't believe what I did. And he goes on to tell how he got you know, drunk out of their minds and, and how they did this and they, how they did that. And they, and they gloried in it. You know, it was almost like a badge of courage, you know. They wanted to impress you. And the next guy would say, you think that was something? I did this. You know, it was like one up over the other. They gloried in their sin. And so, to put it another way, the godly man does not intimately befriend the wicked behave as the wicked, nor believe as the wicked do. You see? And so this is the kind of path that God has for the godly person. When one becomes too friendly with the wicked, one can be led astray. When our casual contact starts to become close contact, we can start thinking, behaving, and becoming like those who do not know God nor honor Him. When I first came to Grace Baptist Church 2000, in 2009, I quickly noticed the similarity between Grace Baptist Church and my church in Dallas, okay? We're very similar in many ways. We just have a little bit more Western spin to things, okay? But many of our men had positions and jobs where they had to travel. Many of them were working for consulting firms. Many of them were on a plane Sunday night so they can start business on Monday, and then they would work all the way through until Friday and catch a plane and come home, and they're home for one day to wash their clothes, and then it starts all over again. I was walking with some of the, our men on this, and so I said, you know, tell me, what, what's your life like? And he said, Pastor, it's really busy. And I said, okay, I, I understand that. It's busy. What else is it? And they would say, it's very tempting. It's very tempting. You wouldn't believe the temptations I face out there. And I said, well, tell me about them. And they would go on to say, because of the long hours they work, the fact that they are away from their hometowns and the chances of being seen by somebody they know is very little they almost had a different lifestyle. They almost had a different lifestyle. And so what happens is they would go out and do their work. They would be so fatigued, so wiped out, that they were prime targets for temptation. And so pretty soon they started hanging out with their coworkers. They started hanging out with 
unsavory types, and they began to practice things that they never thought they would. Those people became their best friends. Those people became their confidants. These people became what brothers and sisters in Christ should become. So I was listening to this, and I told this brother, I said, took out my a piece of paper, I wrote my number down, and I said, if you ever want, if you're ever tempted out there, give me a call, night or day, wherever you are. Reverse the charges if you have to, because I care that much about you, and I don't want to see you become so good friends, so close, so intimate with colleagues, clients, and coworkers who think completely different than you do that you're out there all by yourself. And so that's why this whole thing is so dangerous. I know you're sitting out there. Many of you are confident businessmen. Many of you are confident whatever you are. And and, and you say, (laughs) "Ah, Pastor, that's that's old-fashioned. That's not for me. I'm this. I'm strong. And all this kind of stuff. Good. I'm glad you are. Stay that way. Stay that way. But be on the alert. When you start making your clients, coworkers, and and um, and uh, people like that your closest confidants, then you may be in trouble. Now, you guys are smart, so some of you are sitting out there already, and you're saying, "Pastor, you're wrong," because if I cloister myself, if I close myself off, how will we ever reach the unsaved? How will I ever reach my unsaved coworker? client or a a, a person like that. How am I going to ever do that? You're ahead of me. You're ahead of me. Okay, when I grew up as a young man in the church, I don't know who said it, but I think it was our pastor. He says, we are in the world, but not of the world. Okay? And so what that tells me is that no matter what, we do have to maintain some distance. Not complete distance, but some distance. Okay? Okay? Another statement that was made that I remember is we don't win the lost by, li- by living like the lost. You win the lost by loving the lost and living like the saved. Now, isn't that something? Isn't that something? You might sit out there and you say to yourself, man, this is not rocket science. You're right. It isn't. This is godly sense. You see? And this is how the godly person ought to look at this whole business of relationships with the unsaved. In Texas, you know, in, in Texas, they, they, they have these little sayings that are always quite, you know, they're kind of homey, kind of country, kind of moronic, I suppose, to city people. But they carry a load of truth. And one of them that I heard was this. It is fine that the boat is in the water but bad when the water is in the boat. Some of you got it, all right? It's fine that the boat is in the water, but bad when the water is in the boat. You see? And that's what happens. We're in the world, but not of the world. But if the world gets into us, watch out. All hell breaks loose, okay? And so that's what the warning is that God wants to give to us in Psalm chapter 1, verse 1. He's trying to tell us and warn us that the path of the godly man is he has to carefully avoid ungodly 
influences. Well, what's the next thing? In verse 2, the writer tells us the pleasure of the godly man. The pleasure. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night. Well, the word delight there means great pleasure. Great pleasure in the word of God. He has deep affection for the word of God. He gives his full attention to the word of God. How do you know that? Because he says he meditates on it. The word meditate means to study and reflect on the word. When we study and reflect on the word of God, it's not just a casual Passover, okay? It's not just, oh, I saw that. Oh, that's a nice thing to say, okay? But you stop and you think about it. You think how it applies to your life. Perhaps there's a sin to avoid, a victory to gain, a promise to claim, truth to be learned, a blessing to enjoy, and so on and so forth. But how many of us actually read the Word of God long enough and deeply enough that we can extract all that? You see, we're kind of, you know, we're kind of... (coughs) I'm not bad-mouthing these reading, bi- reading your Bible programs, okay? But sometimes I think we fall prey to those things because they say we must read chapter ten, you know, 1 to 10 today because it's on the program. And we're just speed-reading through that, baby. <laughs> we're going as fast as we can to get through that. We don't stop to actually reflect and meditate on what God is saying to us through it. And so we have to stop and meditate And when it says day and night, do you think that means literally day and night, 24-7? Is that that what he's meaning? No. Another way to look at this is that he wants us to think biblically and live biblically all the time. Then you can accomplish that day and night thing. Okay? Remember those little bracelets that came out for a long time? Made the person who made that very rich. You know, what would Jesus do? kind of a thing. But, you know, there's a lot of truth in that. What would Jesus do? Okay? What would God want me to do? How do I think biblically and live biblically uh, all the time? And so, this would be the thought that is in there. Draw pleasure and delight from studying God's Word. And so, this is something that the godly man does. But how do you delight in God's Word? How much... How much do you look forward to reading and meditating on it? Well, I was thinking about this, and um, I got a little nostalgic. I got a little nostalgic. Okay, 48-plus years ago, my wife and I got married, okay? You know, I know we don't look it, but, you know, it's been that long. And, and, and so I remember when I was in the Army and, and when I was at pharmacy school and when we were separated, we would write letters to each other, okay? We would write letters to each other. I wrote more letters than she did, okay? I just want to let you know that, okay? And so what happened was I would go down to the mailbox expectantly every day hoping that I would get a letter from my, my beloved Okay, and when I got it, oh, they meant the world to me. In fact, I would read them over and over and over again. In fact, I saved them. She made me get rid of them after we got married, okay? 
But I had stacks of her letters, okay? I looked at them. I read them carefully. I exegeted every word, trying to squeeze as much meaning out of them as possible. All right? Here's my question. Do we delight in God's word like we would a love letter from our beloved? Yeah. Now, pastor, now you're picking on me. No, I'm not picking on you. I'm just saying that's the way we need to be about the word of God. The godly man delights in the word of God. And then slowly their mind begins to change, your heart begins to change, and wonderful things begin to happen when we involve ourselves in delighting in in the Word of God. Well, what are the prospects of the godly man? Look at verse 3. Okay, look at verse 3. He will be, look at the future tense, he will be like a tree firmly planted by the streams of water which yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither, and in whatever he does, he prospers. Whoa, look at those things. He is planted. He is firmly rooted. He's not blown away by every stormy circumstance of life. He is strong. He is stable. That's what this person is like. He's like this tree planted by the streams of the water. He's healthy, There's plenty of nourishment that's coming from the ground because his roots are deep. He's productive, he is fruitful and effective. When a tree is healthy, it will be fruitful. And the fruit usually is a demonstration of what is inside that tree. And so what happens is that when we begin to study the Word of God and God begins to make us more faithful, He makes us more patient, He makes us more strong, all of these things, He makes us more persevering, all of that begins to show up in our lives. And then He says we will be prosperous. The prosperous there is not referring to material um, uh, prosperity, but it, it refers to being refreshed and renewed by the Word of God no matter what circumstances uh, come. No matter what happens to us, we come out ahead. We win. I, was, I had the privilege of making some hospital visits of late, and one particular hospital visit I make, the, the person there always says, Pastor, Pastor, would you please write something in my, my, my notebook that you came and what verse you shared, and what you said to me. And at first, I was taken back a little bit, because I'll confess to you, I don't always walk into a hospital room with a verse. Now, with this person, I do, because I know they're going to ask me. And so I walked in, and I wrote down the day I came. I wrote down generally what I said to them, you know, the important points. And then I wrote down a passage or a word that I Well, I learned later on from a relative, they said that this person in the hospital does that to everybody who comes. Why? Because when we are gone and they are alone, they go back and they review the pages and they draw new strength from what was shared by people that come to visit. You see? 
That's the kind of thing that ought to happen with us. That's the kind of thing. We will prosper. No matter what the circumstances are, we will gain new strength from, for our new situation. So, the happy, I mean, the godly man is happy because he distances himself from the negative influences. He delights himself in God's word, and he is destined for a productive life. Wow. You know, that sounds pretty good to me. You know, if I could achieve one of those, two of those, or God help me, all three of those, that would be a pretty happy me. How about you? Would you be pretty happy? I think so. I think so. And so this is what he describes as what a godly person should uh, be, not do, and what he should do. Okay? Now, let's move on to the ungodly man. Okay, the ungodly man. This is verses 4 to 6. And this is the one who does not have a personal relationship with God. Okay? He does not have that personal relationship with God. This is the wicked person. Okay, verse 4. What does it say? The wicked are not so. So right off the bat, the writer says, okay, okay, we just talked about the godly person. We just talked about the righteous person. We got that down, right? You understand that? You understand that? You understand? Yeah, I got it down. Then he says, but the wicked person is not so. This is not the case with the wicked person. Well, what is? But they are like chaff which the wind drives away. What is that? Okay? He is the wicked person. He is driven about in verse 4. He is loose and unstable as chaff being tossed about in the air. The ungodly man is driven about in life by strong forces that he neither sees nor controls. He is subject to any belief system that comes around. Wow. Does that not explain? Does that not explain why many of our unsaved friends and relatives and all of that are not yet saved? Because they bite into everything. They believe everything but nothing. You see? They are like wind. This comes around, whoosh, they go that way. The wind comes, whoosh, they go that way. They go all over the place. You see? He says that's the characteristic of the ungodly. They are driven about. Then in verse 5, he says, They are doomed. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the, nor sinners in the assembly of the, right, of the righteous. In other words, this person who is wicked, the person who does not have this personal relationship with God, he will not be able to stand up under the judgment of God when that comes. Okay? He will not meet the standard. He won't measure up. In fact, he will be separated from the company of the righteous. Instead of being included, he'll be excluded. Whoa. Whoa, that's pretty serious. That's pretty serious. You want to be one of the you want to be the one of the god a godly person or you want to be an ungodly person? If you're an ungodly person, you'll be categorized with the wicked. There'll be no place for you with those who are righteous. And then verse 6 summarizes it, and it says, For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. Knows the way of the righteous, 
The word know there means carries the idea of personal, close, and intimate knowledge. God has intimate knowledge of each of us who claim to have a relationship with God. For those of us who claim to be saved by Jesus Christ's work on the cross. We, God knows us. And he says, the wicked will perish. The road or course that, uh, the wicked are on a road or course that leads to ruin or to nothing or to grief. It's the literal translation or to frustration. Now, again, some of you are ahead of me and you say to yourself, but pastor, that does not square with what I see in life. Because what I see in life is actually the way of the wicked looks pretty good to me. (laughs) I mean, they're the ones that seem to be moving along in the world. They're the ones that seem to be successful. They're the ones that seem to have the fat bank accounts. They're the ones that seem to have all the credit cards. They seem to really be living it up. But me, I try to follow God, and man, I'm like swimming upstream all time, you see? Well, the Bible does address that in Psalm 73, because the complaint of the, uh, the person going through the psalm was that in verse 3, the, he sees the prosperity of the wicked. But guess what? If you read further down in verses 17 to 20, God He goes to the temple and he realizes the final outcome of the wicked. And he realizes it's not so good. It's not so good. So what does that tell us? Okay, what does that tell us? It tells us this. What we see now is not the final outcome of the way of the wicked. Okay? The way of the wicked, it looks good now here on earth. But at the end of this journey we call life, they will lose and lose terribly. Okay? And so this is the the plight that faces the wicked person. But the godly person, he is intimately known by God. And God can intimately get into your life. Every nook and cranny. He cares about what you're thinking about. He cares about what you're deciding to do. He cares about you. And that's what the the godly person can look forward to. Now, as an individual or as a group, how can we achieve happiness? Well, let me give you three things based upon this passage. First of all, happiness is achieved and starts with becoming a godly man or woman. One who has a personal relationship with God. Okay? So, if you walked in in the doors today, and maybe you were just, you found us on the internet. Maybe perhaps you were just curious. Maybe perhaps you just didn't have anything else to do on a Sunday afternoon. It's hot outside, so you decided to come in and get some free air conditioning. So, you came to the church by no accident. God wanted you here. And what you need to do is you need to understand. It starts with having that personal relationship with God. And that starts with um, believing uh, in Jesus Christ. It means believing that Jesus Christ died and rose again from the grave for your sins. If you don't believe me, turn to John chapter 3. John chapter 3, verse 16. Okay, John chapter 3, verse 16. 
And what does it say there? It says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. This eternal life is that personal relationship with God. Okay? And that starts with believing that Christ died and rose again from the grave for your sin. But what else, do, what, what else can you do with this belief? What else can you do? Look at Romans chapter 10. Romans chapter 10, verses 9 through 11. For, and verse, verse 9 to 11 and then verse 13. For if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart a person believes, resulting in righteousness, and with the mouth he confesses, resulting in salvation. For the scripture says, whoever believes in him will not be disappointed, it says. And so the, the way to have a personal relationship with God is quite clear. It's not by works, but it's by faith. It's by believing that Jesus Christ died on the cross for you, for your sins, and rose again from the grave. So that's where it starts. And if you're struggling with this, if you say to yourself, I've heard it, but I don't quite understand it, fair enough. Please come see me after the service or Pastor, I mean, uh, uh, Elder Chong Tian or any of the elders in the church, and they will be happy to talk with you. Number two, happiness is achieved and sustained by distancing yourself from negative influences. It's not that you can't have good friends or acquaintances. Just don't become so close that they become the controlling, consuming factor in your life. That's all we're saying. That's all we're saying. Sometimes when people come to me, you know, and, and, and you know, things are very confused, things are very complex and all that, and, and I'll ask them a question. I says, well, hmm, how, how did it get this way? And, and they'll say, well, I, I talked to my best friend. And I'll say, well, okay, that, that's good. Who, who's your best friend? Are they a believer, let's say? And they'll say, no, no, they, they, they don't know God yet. And, but what they said seemed to make sense to me. And so that's what I was doing. Now, I'm not saying that unsaved people cannot have good advice. Sometimes they do. However, 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 if you go to people who aren't rooted in the Word of God... How will you know what God thinks about something? You won't, because you'll never hear it, okay? And so be sure to uh, distance yourself from negative influences. Number three, happiness is achieved and sustained by delighting yourself in God's Word, okay? Happiness is not just a one-off event or experience. It is something that takes place over a whole lifetime. Once that personal relationship with God is established, study, obey, and reply God's word in your life, okay? What you do will flow from who you are. I gave this example up at camp, and I don't know why I'm so fixated on this. My wife says, boy, you're pretty fixated on this. You've used this several times, okay? But I can't get away from it. Can you do loving things without being a loving person? Yes, you can. Yes, you can. You can do good things without being a good person. Right? Okay? But so much better that God wants us to be good people who do good things. You see? And so this is the, God wants us to be truly loving people and then to love other people. Right? Do loving things. So that's the point. 
And this happens, how? When we immerse ourselves and delight ourselves in the Word of God. That true transformation begins and true happiness replaces despair. Jeremiah chapter 17 verses 5 to 8 said similarly, a similar thing that the psalmist says. Blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord and whose trust is, is the Lord. For he will be like a tree planted by the water that extends its roots by stream and will not fear what, when the heat comes, but its leaves will be green and it will not be anxious in a year of drought nor cease to yield fruit. Okay? And so our happiness, our healthiness is not dependent on our circumstances. Okay? That's what we want to get. That's where we want to get. True happiness, then, is achieved by being a godly man or woman. True happiness is achieved by distancing ourselves from negative influences and delighting in God's Word. So here's the challenge. Here's the challenge. Father, mother, son, daughter, what are you waiting for? Find true happiness in the Lord. Now, okay, it can start right this minute. You don't have to wait till next week. You can start finding it now by distancing yourself from negative influences and starting to delight yourself in the Word of God. Okay, let's pray together. Father, your Word is a challenge to all of us. Sometimes we make what you say very complex. And it's not to say there aren't some things in your word that are complex. There are. There are many. But there are also many things that are not complex. In fact, they're rather straightforward. I pray today that as your people have heard your word that your spirit would apply it to their heart. And Father, they will look at their own lives and see where they have perhaps slipped up. And Father, confess it and make, take corrective action. Father, whether it is becoming too friendly with the world or whether it is perhaps neglecting your word, whatever it may be, may, Father, you bring it to heart and bring it to mind so that we can be healed and that we can move forward and really achieve the true happiness you want us to have. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.